Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. The Torah, known as the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses, is split into 54 Torah portions in Hebrew parashiot, and they usually read one Torah portion each Shabbat. However, there are 14 parashiot, 14 weekly portions that, depending on the year, can be potentially paired together. So on that Shabbat, two Torah portions would be read. This is one of those weeks that we read two Torah portions together. Now, there are a number of reasons why parashiot are doubled up, and some reasons specifically apply to certain pairings. But basically, the issue is that although we split the Torah into 54 portions, a regular Jewish year has 353 to 355 days. That leaves us with approximately 50 to 51 Shabbatot on which to read the Torah portions. Additionally, as some of you know, when a Jewish holiday coincides with Shabbat, we read the special holiday reading instead of the weekly Torah portion. That leaves us most often with a maximum of 48 Torah portions to read in a regular week. Um, Therefore, in order to reconcile the weekly cycle of Parshiot with the number of Shabbatot available, we sometimes need to double up the portions. As I said, this is one of those weeks. Our Torah portion is a double portion. It is called Vayikahel and is usually translated as, um, and he gathered and is found in Exodus 35, beginning with verse 1. And the name of the second portion is Pikudei, which often is translated as amounts of and is found in Exodus 38. Together, the two Torah portions conclude the book of Exodus. Let me give you a brief overview of the two portions before I introduce our guest this morning and unpack some of the more unusual aspects of this double portion. Moses assembles the people of Israel and reiterates to them the commandment to observe Shabbat. He then conveys God's instructions regarding the making of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the people donate required materials in abundance, bringing gold, silver, copper, blue, purple, and red dyed wool, goat hair, and numerous other specific donations, and they over-donate perhaps the first time that that has ever happened in a building campaign, Moses has to tell them to stop giving. A team of artisans identified in the Torah as wise-hearted make the Mishkan and its furnishings that have been previously detailed in the parsha known as Truma, Titzaven, Kitaseh. Um, I will not repeat them because listeners know that we have gone through the intricacies of that building. An accounting is made of the gold and silver and copper donated by the people for the making of the Mishkan. And Bitzalel and Aholav and their assistants make the eight priestly garments, the apron, the breastplate, the cloak, the crown, the hat, the tunic, the sash, and beaches all according to the specifications previously communicated to Moses by God. 
The Mishkan is completed, and all its components are brought to Moses, who erects it and anoints it with the holy anointing oil and initiates Aaron and his four sons into the priesthood. The Torah portion concludes, and therefore the book of Exodus Shemot concludes, with a cloud appearing over the Mishkan, signifying that the divine presence has come to dwell within it. Well, as you can tell, this Torah portion is filled with verses and scenes that call out to be examined. With me this morning, a first-time guest to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts is Rabbi Phil Cohn, who is a uh, PhD, but in addition received his ordination from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in New York City. He earned a PhD in Jewish thought from Brandeis University in the United States and a Master of Fine Arts degree from Spalding University in Louisville. He has served a number of congregations in the United States and Canada and now serves as the interim rabbi at Knesset Israel in Allentown, Pennsylvania, one of the oldest reform congregations, perhaps one of the oldest congregations in the United States. Um, and he is the author of a uh, novel entitled Desolation Row, uh, Nick Bones Mystery, which we are going to begin our conversation by discussing. So, Rabbi Cohn, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Um, I imagine there is so much that you'd like to say about your novel, but let's just give our listeners a quick peek into it and tell them where they can find it. Sure, absolutely. First of all, I appreciate all the all the research you did on me. Most of it is accurate. I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure at what point. I was circulating the title that you gave was the title of my novel, but the actual published title is Nick Bones Underground. Ah. Nick Bones Underground. And it is a dystopian Jewish science fiction novel. It takes place roughly in my old apartment in Brooklyn or in the building I lived in when I was in rabbinical school in Brooklyn in sometime in a, in a distinct, in an indistinct future um, concerning a, uh, concerning a, a, um, uh, a college professor who's kind of down and he's, he's kind of a down, he's kind of depressed and he takes up um, doing missing persons work. And the book is spent with him and his disembodied AI computer searching for his old high school study partner. And it takes you through the city, the underground and above ground, hence the name Nick Bones Underground. Uh, won a prize from the Jewish Book Council, a finalist in the category of debut novel. So it's well worth reading if, if, if this kind of thing tickles your fancy at all. And of course, as, as in everything that's published in the world, it's available at Amazon, but also Barnes and Noble, but probably not in your local bookstore unless, uh, unless you order it from your local bookstore, which is also possible. And um, I, I'm wondering if um, you have um, hopes of making this a uh, series. It's, it, I'm, I'm halfway through the sequel as we speak. Wonderful. It's supposed to be a trilogy, but I'm, I'm, worried, I'm, I'm focusing on the second one before I worry about the third one. Uh, well, I hope some of our listeners will take advantage of uh, picking up this book, A Nick Bones Mystery, 
um, found on Amazon or in Barnes and Nobles or perhaps on other websites. Um, and we wish you good luck with it. Um, let's make the transition from your book to a different book, Absolutely. the book of Exodus. Absolutely. Um, and share with our listeners why you think these two Torah portions are a, a suitable end to the book of Exodus, which I would remind our listeners began with the Jews in Egypt and with the redemption of the Jews from Egypt. And as we speak, Passover is only a couple of weeks away for the Jewish people throughout the world, but we're not ending with the story of Passover. We're, we have a different kind of ending. Yeah, well, the, the story of Passover, of course, is, is, is incorporated in the crossing of the sea. So in, in a sense, the story of Passover occurred earlier. But look, um, I've always I've always been fascinated by the fact that the book of Exodus opens with the kind of narrative prose that characterizes the entirety of the book of Genesis. Good stories, really good stories, full of character and plot and place, and of course miracles and spirituality. Um, but it begins in degradation, as we say in the in, in during uh, during the Passover Seder. It begins in degradation. The Israelites have come, well, they're not the Israelites yet. Jacob, the Jacob family has moved from Canaan to Egypt and taken up residence in what one imagines is a very high level suburb somewhere because they're, because of, because of Joseph's success in Canaan, in Egypt rather. Uh, but they become enslaved rather quickly, as most people probably know and as Steve already mentioned. So it opens up with degradation. Uh, and it's taken up with a good, a good part of the book is taken up with, first of all, the, um, selection of Moses as, as the leader, the 10 plagues, the crossing of the sea, then several months in wandering in the desert to Mount Sinai, the receiving of the Torah. So you've got this, you've got this slave people who, you know, who, who for generations were enslaved, according to the tradition anyway. They were enslaved for generations and had nothing. Now, um, I, I have to I have to say because that's going it, to it's having having nothing as they're leaving Egypt. If you if you know the story, the the Egyptians freely pour upon them all their wealth. So they're leaving with gold and silver and copper and God knows what else. So that two things can happen um, in the in the Exodus story. But I will get to that in just a second because the ending of the book then is the building of this Mishkan, this tabernacle, which is, as Steve alluded to, is enormously, it's enormously elaborate. And the text is enormously elaborate. It really, speaking for myself, to read the text, either in Hebrew or English, it tries your patience because it uses, it, it uses lots of words that I don't know. And I mean in English or Hebrew, but the, but there and, and, and I'll, 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 I'll say a little bit more about this in a second, but it's enormously elaborate. the The first part, the first part of Yakel is taken up with the gathering of the materials and the beginning of the construction. The second parsha, the second Torah portion, which concludes the book, concludes with the assembly of it, and um, the um, the uh, uh, Aaron and his sons get dressed in finery. Um, the pact, the pact, or maybe the Ten Commandments. Are put inside of a box, special a special place, and and the book ends. I'm going to say a little bit more about this, uh, maybe now or maybe later in the conversation. But two things happen. One, um, last week's Torah portion, we were occupied with the golden calf, uh, 
The golden calf is a story of the building of this object for veneration, for worship, because the children of Israel are kind of, they're, they're kind of, um, uh, they've gotten worried that Moses is up on the mountain and he hasn't come down yet. And Aaron, for reasons that are not entirely clear, cooperates with their demand to build the golden calf. So Aaron says, give me your stuff. And they give him their stuff, the gold and the silver and the copper and God knows what else. And mysteriously, as the text describes, the, the calf is made. Um, and then Moses comes down, destroys the calf. And this becomes a tremendous blot on the history of the Israelites in the desert. Not only was it a tremendous blot, but in the wake of this, 3,000 people die. So that's last week's Torah portion. Last week, the children of Israel built a calf. 3,000 people died. They kind, of, they kind of got reconciled with God. Moses reconciled with God. Moses says, if you don't lead these people, I ain't going. I can't do this myself. Um, and so God agrees. And then, then the whole thing pauses. Um, we don't learn anymore in a way, except, I want to, except the thing I want to get to um, sometime during this conversation, the very last few verses of the, of the parasha. So then, Moses, so then this week, Moses says, we're going to build this mishkan. We're going to build this tabernacle. Give me all your stuff. Now, again, one would think that they gave all their stuff last week, and that got ground in, into dust, and it got, it got it was all they drank it. So this, it wasn't like it got melted down and reused. But somehow there was a reserve of wealth, and the Israelites come forward and give all that stuff. And as Steve pointed out, so much so that that the uh, the fundraising committee said, "Gunog, it's enough. We don't, we don't, we, we can't take any more." So I want I want to ask you something. The story of the Mishkan begins earlier in the book of Exodus. Uh, two or three Torah portions prior to ours, um, we have the command to build me a Mishkan that I may dwell among you. And then, as you so eloquently reminded our listeners, last week we had the story of the golden calf, and this week we're told again, with all the specificity that existed previously repeated about the Mishkan. Um, as you think about this Torah portion, do you think that there is a, um, a reason for this retelling of the Mishkan? Is the golden calf kind of so important that the Israelites have to be reminded by the retelling and the re-emphasis and that they found gold reserves and silver reserves and copper reserves that they had been hiding somewhere, or perhaps not everybody uh, shared their wealth. Um, why do we have to end the book with what's really a repetition? Is it because we couldn't end the book on the golden calf? Well, I, that's, that's a possibility. Um, but uh, and, and one, one way of thinking about this, and this is the second part, um, the, the in a sense, the, in one sense, the Israel maybe in, even in the earlier iteration, might, you might say the Israelites deserve a really elaborate place in which to in which to worship God, and 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 and, uh, and where God's where God's artifacts might be held and and, and so forth. Um, but then there's then it's interrupted by this sin. So on the one hand, the, the Israelites deserve an elaborate building to, in which to worship. But the second thing is, this becomes the reconciliation from reconciliation with God 
because of the, the golden calf. And, I, and actually, I have, I have two midrashim. I have two rabbinic stories. Um, and, I, and I hope they're interesting enough. I'm always, I'm always taken when somebody points out a, a, a rabbinic story having to do with the Torah portion. So let me just clarify um, for the listeners who may uh, not know or who would be helped by a reminder. Um, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, um, writes in a style that is fairly sparse. And even in the narrative sections, um, it doesn't answer all the questions that a uh, wise reader would want answered. The What Rabbi Cohn is about to share with us are uh, stories written over the generations by others, usually identified as the rabbis, sometimes by name, sometimes anonymous. And these rabbis answer a question that arises from the sparse um, a style of writing in the Torah. Um, they are not Torah in and of themselves, but over time have become important to the Jewish people to help us understand what messages are left unsaid but need to be said. So share with us. Yeah, so very well put. Now, these two, these two midrashim actually contradict each other, which, which is a pretty good literary critical fact about about any literature, but the Torah being among among great literature. There once was a king who married a beloved daughter to a foreign prince. These Mizrashim often are often um, allegories in, 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 having to do with, with royalty. Following the wedding, the couple prepared to leave for the prince's land. The king said to the prince, I can't bear my daughter leaving, but neither can I keep you here. Do me one favor. In your home, prepare a small area for me where I might be with you. Build me a little, you know, what's it called? Mother-in-law apartment in the Mishkan. So God said to Moses, I have given you the Torah. I can't part with it. Neither can I take it from you. What, please, wherever Israel goes, let them make for me one place where I might be close to you. So according to this Midrash, the Mishkan is for God. Um, and, and, and for a dwelling place for God. And I, I'm going to say for the third time, there's something I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I read from the Torah portion itself. But then there's this other Midrash that's, that notes after the golden calf that God says, since you have allowed evil into your midst, I can't dwell with you fully, but neither I can I completely abandon you. Therefore, make me one small area where I can dwell in your midst. So here, the Mishkan, the, the, um, the tabernacle, is, a nece is necessary because the people have been sinful. And, and, and in my mind, I always like to reconcile the two together. It's, it's kind of both. God gave us the Torah, but it's, it's going to travel with us wherever we go. And at the same time, this, 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 this repetition, and so much of it, it's a very elaborate repetition of what's already been presented, is, is that reconciliation. God, God, is able, God, God finds God's God, God finds that God is able to be with the Israelites in spite of this terrible sin. Um, so, as, as Steve mentioned, um, the, um, the, uh, and this is another reason why this is a great ending for the book of Exodus. Um, it's all finished. Um, 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 Aaron and his sons have gotten dressed. The pact has been placed in the ark with the, with the law in it. The poles and, the, and all, all the stuff is, is, is finally completed. And then it says, when Moses finished the work, by the way, I, and I have to say, 
Throughout all these Torah, these two Torah portions, God never speaks. Moses always speaks for God, but there's no there's no dialogue um, attached directly to God in these Torah portions. Uh, as Moses finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their various journeys. But if the cloud didn't lift, they would not set out until such time as it lifted. For over the tabernacle, a cloud of God, God rested by day and fire would appear at night in the view of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. So now they've been liberated. They have 10 plagues. They've crossed the sea. They've received the Torah. They, they sinned. And they're, they're now on the precipice of their great journey. They don't know yet, by the way, that they're going to be condemned for wandering to wander for 40 years. That happens in the book of Numbers. So it's a, it's a little, it's, it's a while. Right now, they think that they got a couple of months of wandering to get to the promised land. It's interesting. Some have suggested, and, uh, and perhaps you can respond to this. When they stood at Sinai, um, earlier in the book of Exodus, um, they felt, um, God's presence. Perhaps um, it was too powerful for them. They said, uh, in many ways, um, we can't really uh, get close to God. It's too powerful for us. But um, it was the moment of revelation, and it was the moment when the Israelites and God seemed to be uh, closest to each other. And some have suggested, of course, that they couldn't bring um, Sinai with them, um, it was a little hard to carry um, the rocks with them. So instead of a T-shirt that said, I stood at Sinai, uh, God said to them, well, take the tabernacle with you. The tabernacle, um, as some have said, um, seems to be the means by which the Israelites can take the Sinaitic experience with them. And what um, led me to ask this question as we conclude our conversation in a few minutes is this notion of the cloud that you eloquently um, noted, right? Because the Sinai is shrouded in cloud and fog and noise. And you just read for the audience the notion that when the cloud descended on the tabernacle, they couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, and, and I, I, I actually find this a little puzzling, and so I don't usually emphasize the cloud, but it's, it's nonetheless a good question. It's God's presence is there in a powerful way. God's presence is also within the tabernacle, but the, but the cloud is, is, is the more immediate and tangible, I guess, uh, um, instance of God's presence. Um, and and there's a, there seems to be a little a bit of irregularity as to when the cloud goes up and the cloud goes down. Maybe God makes some kind of judgment as to whether the Israelites need another day or two to rest. I don't have any idea. I don't really know about the arbitrariness of the cloud. I don't have a, I don't have a sense of that. Well, the the text doesn't give us any indication. Right. It just says when they're ready to travel, this is what'll happen, and then the cloud descends and they're not ready to travel anymore. Yeah, but but my larger point is that this is a fitting end to a book that's filled with so much drama, good and bad, with regard to the Israelites and their relationship with God. And now, as everything is complete, this tabernacle with the great symbolism of God, you know, and again with this great elaboration, which I I could argue the other side of this question, but 
but they kind of deserve it. After all that, all that drama and all those centuries of enslavement, they're ready to travel. They're, they're ready to be a people. They're, you know, as slaves, they were not a people. As liberated slaves, they were not really yet a people. As the Israelites receiving Torah, they're on their way to becoming a people. But then, as, as, as you pointed out, it's a nice, that's a nice, nice, nice point. As they walk away from Sinai, the site of that great, that great moment of revelation, they have with them not that exact level of, of spirituality, but something that has God inside of it, whether it's because God wants to be there as part of, according to one Midrash, God wants to be there uh, because God wants a little bit of presence or because God, God can only give a little bit of presence because of the sinfulness. But either way, they don't have the totality of God. They have a little bit of God, but enough to enough to keep them connected to this larger transcendent reality as they set off on their journeys. And, and I, I think, I think that's uh, is, as, 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 as lost as I get in trying to piece together these details, and I've read this Torah portion God knows how many times, this, this last sentence is a beautiful ending to, 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 to getting us, getting the Israelites moving on to the, rest, to the rest of the book. Now, next week, it's the book of Leviticus. Right, and it, and it changes. I mean, we're not going to return to narrative um, really until we leave the book of Leviticus. But why don't you read the last sentence again for our readers, if you have it there, just one more time so our listeners can um, have this image of how the book of Exodus concludes. Well, in that case, I'm going to start with the Hebrew, even, even though I Good. know a very few people. Ki Anan Adonai al hamishkan yomam ve'esh tihiyel laila bo chol beit Yisrael v'chol mas ehem. And, I, and, you know, we translate more or less accurately from Hebrew to English, but the Masehem connects their journeys into right. one word, really one word. For over the tabernacle, a cloud of God rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night, in the view of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. All the Israelites got to see it all the time as they journeyed through the desert. And then, of course, the remnants of the Mishkan are, are then packed into the temple when Solomon builds it very much later on. So, it, you know, as you were reading it again, um, it calls to mind the image of the 10th plague that um, whether it's from the uh, Spielberg movie or the uh, original Ten Commandments, that this um, fog descends on Egypt, um, and it's an image of uh, God's presence um, that the Israelites are forced to acknowledge, um, and in that case, they're forced to acknowledge it uh, by their statement of putting the blood on the lintel, not so much for God to know who's Jewish, but for them to take a step forward. And here, the building of the Mishkan serves the same purpose, I would suggest, as you've... Well, yeah, by, by virtue of the fact that everybody everybody contributes. Exactly. So everybody has to step forward to make this uh, uh, a uh, makom. In all the sense of the Hebrew word makom, either a physical place or a name for God. I want to thank uh, my guest this morning, uh, Rabbi Dr. Philip Cohn. 
um, who is the interim rabbi at Knesset Israel Congregation in Allentown, Pennsylvania, for uh, helping us really uh, investigate the uh, end of the book of Exodus and to gain some insight into the connection between last week's building of the golden calf and this week's building of the tabernacle. As he suggested, next week we're going to begin our investigation of the book of Leviticus, a book which is um, um, short on narrative and long on legal material. Um, You can hear our conversation um, on CHRI um, 99.1 FM or on chri.ca website or as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts for. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten saying shalom and wishing you a good day. And thank you. Thank you very much.